Hello, food chain. This is Sharon Chiton, and I'm a food tech junkie and innovation nerd who loves a good story. This podcast combines all of my favorite vices into a deep dive about the problems our food system faces and the visionary people working on solutions. Today, we chat with Noga Sarashelev. With over 15 years of experience in the food industry and a deep familiarity with the local and global food tech industry, she was nominated by the Israeli Innovation Authority as the CEO of Fresh Start Incubator. Today, she is leading its growth with investments in various ventures, and in this episode, we'll discover about her views on food tech and her 2023 predictions. Are you ready? Here we go. Hey, Noga, how are you? Hey, Sharon, I'm fine. How are you? I am good. I am good. I am very curious about this interview. You have a particularly interesting experience because, well, you have a long experience in food and then it became food tech and then it became investing in food tech. Can you tell us a little bit about this journey of yours? Sure, absolutely. So I come from a marketing and a business development background, started my way in advertising of all places, and then started working in marketing, CPG marketing to be exact. I spent a lot of years in Nuva in different marketing and business development roles. And my last position there actually ended up being the chief of staff. So I had a very exciting three and a half years in which the company went through major changes. So I was privileged enough to work side by side with the CEO there to go through strategic processes and and cost reductions and, and, you know, just reinventing the whole structure of the organization and literally anything you can imagine in a, a corporate. So that was an amazing experience. And part of that was actually restructuring uh, the business units. And part of that was establishing the innovation unit of the corporate. So within my chief of staff position, I also established and managed that for two years. And then just before I decided to leave for my next big adventure, we had this incubator opportunity coming up with tender that the IA published. So Nuva decided to go for that. And I was there uh, side by side with the, the rest of the partners that eventually won the tender and found myself in the business development position. <laughs> Here, I had no idea besides my relationship with startups via Nuva, what the actual startup life looks like, but got the hang of that, I guess, pretty fast after encountering really numerous food tech startups here in Israel. And then last March, I got the CEO position. So that's in a nutshell, that's the story. Well, congratulations about that. And I think... In a way, you are in the perfect place to do what you're doing. Israel is definitely high there on the map in terms of startups, in terms of food tech. What kind of energy do you feel every day, like just seeing all these incredible founders come by your doors? Well, as you can imagine, it is very energetic. And luckily, that is exactly what I'm looking for. There's a lot of passion and a lot of purpose and a lot of sense of urgency to be honest in what we're doing. So it's a perfect match in that sense. And, you know, there's the Israeli kind of culture and and maybe kind of vibe around everything that makes us a startup nation. And I think when it comes to food, we have even kind of an extra oomph, if you like. So Israel is very interesting in in the sense that it's an immigrant's kind of country. So uh, in many ways, there's an openness to this kind of different types of food and an open kind of door for 
different kitchens to kind of combine fusion is something very Israeli. I think, I think you also see that coming out of the very high rates of vegans and vegetarians that you find in Israel. A lot of it has to do with kind of the very, we were blessed with really great ingredients around here. So all the, the area of food and the position it takes in our culture on one hand, and this kind of startup nation energy around ingenuity and kind of tech transferring between different spaces and the know-how that we've acquired along the years in, in kind of related areas and talked by the, the really nice structure that is created in Israel for supporting innovation, especially in early stages, I think. I think all of these together combined kind of brought this forward for Israel regarding food tech. And for me, it's, it's kind of the combination of, of many, many things that starting with the fact that, well, we're looking to save the world, right? We're looking kind of to improve the way everybody eats. So there's a lot of mission-driven kind of energy around that. Specifically, what I do here is set in the north of Israel. So there's kind of a... Um, uh, I'd say more kind of a Zionist, if you like, perspective in the sense that we're kind of helping the rural areas of Israel to kind of grow and have a better kind of economic position with new jobs and new tech jobs happening in areas that are not necessarily the centers. So there's that. And then eventually just, you know, my everyday encounter is with CEOs and really, really smart people around tech and investors and so it's a really fun and energetic and, and smart surrounding to be in. So it's, it's really driving, I think, me on a personal level, but also the whole ecosystem is driven in the same right direction and making the change and making it better and doing it with a very kind of full steam, full speed ahead kind of agenda. So if it wasn't clear, I love what I do. And and also I have to say, on kind of on a global perspective, it's a lot of fun to be part of Israeli food tech. When we're going out there, there's a lot of respect to things that are happening here. And I feel a lot of pride when I'm out there kind of telling our story. So that's fun too. Absolutely. I think extremely important thing that Israel has and that other countries followed is the approach to its ecosystem to make it shine, to protect it, right? And when you want a nation to shine, you have to join together and get that result. Many countries are not able to be united, even if within their own jobs they compete, on the outside they are together. How much of that, like by working with the rest of the world, do you see in other countries or other ecosystems around the world compared to yours? So I think, as mentioned, we, we come, Israel comes with an advantage in many areas. It's a disadvantage in this case is a huge advantage of being relatively small, geographically speaking, and in terms of the size of the population. So you can literally pick up the phone or knock on the next door and you're probably going to find someone that can help you out. And that's really important in the early stages that we're at. I think anyone in this space that understood that early on just kind of kept on pushing that specific nuance or that specific attribute further and further. So it created kind of a general vibe here of let's support each other. We're better when we're together. And I think better together is kind of a, a concept that Israel as a whole had to kind of embrace very early on. So it's pretty much kind of embedded within. And I think 
when we bring this notion outside and we tell the story of Israel, there's a lot of interest around this kind of specific agenda or this specific attribute. Kind of, it's a culture, I think, more than anything. I think specifically in food, we feel a lot of it. I don't know how it is in, in different tech spaces, but definitely there's a whole world global network around food. And I think that's specifically because we're dealing with something that is a huge necessity. And it's kind of a really, I think, basically the widest common denominator, basically outside of oxygen or water. I mean, these are areas that everybody needs to eat. Everybody is now already familiar with the need to create a change. So in that sense, this sense of togetherness and sense of joint mission, I do feel it coming from different places. To your question, if, if we recognize this exact type of community, well, not necessarily, but I think there's, there's definitely a, a will to create it. I think things like GFI are actually able to create communities around their agenda. And this community is supportive in the terms of creating more tech evolution and more investments and more advancements in this specific space of food. So I do see in some areas this kind of type of feeling and sense. And I think there's higher and higher awareness of how important it is, especially when it's early stage and you need this type of support, especially when you're looking at really long-term cycles. And even when we're funded, we're almost bootstrapped because of the really high spending that we need on what we're doing and the long cycles that require longer runways for everyone. So there's kind of a shoulder-to-shoulder kind of sense of everything that we're doing. That's, that's my vibe. Absolutely. And I think part of it is, I mean, you mentioned organizations, private organizations, right? Well, Israel is a country. Mm-hmm. And an example of this sort of public-private partnership, mm-hmm. I see it maybe with Singapore, for example. Yes. It's countries that have the need to create something that they don't have, right? Singapore, if they want to have food security and produce their own food, they won't be able to rely on open fields like in the U.S. There is a lot of technology involved. Israel, I think, is that leading example that people started to sort of say, we have to do like they did, which is difficult. It's not an easy thing to not have that human sense of, I have to compete with this person instead of collaborate with this person. It's a very special thing. And to that question, how does a government support so much of what is happening? I tend to answer this question by saying that I think the government treats innovation in Israel as as, as a natural resource. Okay, so and if you have a natural resource, you usually like to kind of nurture it and support it and make sure that you're making the best out of it. And I think pretty early on, it was clear that we're really good in ideation, in kind of breaking the barriers or the the mind barriers around specific areas, cross-teching from one area to another. You know, as as they say, necessity is the source of all innovation, right? So it was a necessity to overcome the the limited resources, to overcome the the sense of kind of we were like an island in a situation that we're here geopolitically speaking. So I think in that sense, it's very similar to what you just mentioned about Singapore. And other maybe more concentrated areas where you can rely on the on the basic commonality that happens in between mm-hmm. people. I do agree that 
the government in Israel very early on recognized that where there's a gap on the private sector and, you know, early stage, definitely you had a gap there. So they wanted to step in where the gap existed. So they pretty quickly mapped this. And it's not just in food tech, to be honest. I mean, they recognized areas where Israel has some sort of an advantage, and then they pushed really hard on creating more and more ideation around these areas. And their structure is relying on both reducing the risk by funding, which is important and we need it, but also creating an advantage for anyone that is looking to kind of support this on the private sector. To be honest, this is what the incubators program is all about. I mean, it's tenders. It's giving really nice added value to the investors or the, the partners that are establishing the incubator and running it by this reimbursement. But on the other hand, it requests them or demands them to put a lot of efforts and a lot of in-kind support to make sure that the companies and the incubator actually receive a lot of uh, all the best chances, if you like, for success. And in that sense, they're kind of creating a situation or a platform that leverages the main benefits out of each of the parts. There's a lot of work done around academia. By the way, some will say not enough, but more and more financing or more and more programs that are directed into funding research that will be uh, prepared or set for commercialization. Our own incubation program was just last year expanded to support directly projects coming out of the academia, making sure that this tech transfer from academia to the market will actually be more successful, if you like, or more prepared in order to support the, the later on investments in it. So there's a lot of orientation, a lot of thought around where are gaps, where do we need to fund, where do we add more and more support in order to make it happen. Then make sure that you have also the right methods or the right support for the next stages as well. So no one will fall in between the cracks. So I think that was very clever and kind of figuring that out. This is a resource. We have to support it. How do we support it? We map the gaps and then we kind of come into the gaps where there are. And the next maybe big thing that is happening right now is that the Israeli government or the IIA are figuring out that we have gaps around infrastructure to support, for example, scaling up. Again, it's a very small country. We don't need, the market is not that huge. So how do you back the actual development or establishment of these type of facilities? Again, government came in. There's a, now a grant for establishing these type of platforms. So that's just a good example of how they are doing it and how they're balancing between private sector and government funding in order to make sure that things will go in the right direction. That's smart. I mean, I've always had the idea that to make things work, one thing is never going to solve anything if you can't complete that circle. So it's really about connecting those dogs and creating that fundamental ground that is sturdy and makes something grow and arrive all the way to the other end, bridging those gaps step by step, stone after stone. So that is definitely the way. I, 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 I also think if I, just to add something into it, I think that the fact that there is room for whether it's Startup Nation Central as, you know, a not, an NGO that came in and just kind of, again, closed the gap to, to see, okay, how can we connect what's going on here with what's going abroad before the government or the, the state as an entity actually came in and started working in that direction? Or again, even GSI saying, okay, we recognize a huge trend. It's not just us crazy vegetarian people. It's bigger than us or, or our specific dietary preferences, but rather a more global issue 
And then the ability of the government here to allow these entities to really be integrated into this ecosystem. And everybody's working together. It's the government, it's the NGOs, it's the private sector. So having all these parts, each contributing their own and also allowing, in a sense, something that is not biased, okay? We're not, we don't have an agenda as a state. We don't have an agenda as a private sector necessarily. We have something that is very common for everybody. And that's also, I think, very supportive of a more kind of balanced approach into how to promote things, what things are getting promoted and how. I think if I were to imagine what the future of food for me looks like, or in general, our future, it seems that from much earlier on, the sort of aggregation and collaboration works more towards sort of the regenerative business models that are out there instead of the old linear ways of the 80s and the 90s. So it's, it's very interesting and I think a great example to sort of see in general, you know, I agree. sick and resilient. Oh, so you're there, you have your startups as an incubator. What are some of the trends from your experience that you see highlighting for 2023? Okay. So I'm going to risk being a bit repetitive because I don't think I have all the knowledge with me. And obviously these trends are already out there and spoken of, but I can only reinforce if you like <laughs> what's already seen. So I think it's pretty clear by now that we're all about enablers saying if food tech a few years ago was all about the amazing final product we can bring into the market. It's pretty clear by now that if you want to create impact, if you want to create real change, if you want to really uh, have a new industry, you have to go A, B to B, F and B to kind of enable kind of the novel concepts that were already there and were generally accepted as the next big thing. And and I don't know if I could say unfortunately, but pretty obviously have encountered the realization of how hard it is to get a new technology into the food industry with all the barriers and all the regulation and all the issues and all the consumer perspectives, if you like to create a new industry as a whole and enabling technologies, which is a huge name for an, or kind of a very wide description for anything from processing to ingredients that actually support the type of changes I'm discussing, at, with, whether it's alternative protein that is looking for a, a completely different industry in the sense of the sourcing of the supporting ingredients of, of every process along the way that will allow a product to eventually to be as good as us spoiled consumers are used to consume it. And we don't want to have any gaps there because we want the implementation to be wide or any enabling technology that actually reduces the costs of implementing these amazing new concepts of biotechnology coming into food, whether it's in fermentation or cell culture, we need these to, to actually make it happen eventually. Uh, we're talking about novel ingredients that will allow us to improve our food resilience without her harming our health. So in that sense, enabling technologies is, okay, we got the concepts set. We know where we want to go, but now we need to have all these bits and bytes of technology supporting our way towards that direction. Um, so I think that's kind of a wide concept and it's a bit of a change. It's, if you like, like less sexier, you don't see it on the shelf eventually. You don't have kind of that tasting experience of something completely new. 
but it's immense in the sense of how it really supports the the change that we're trying to create. So I think there's a lot of understanding around that area. And it also helps realize that the the numbers, if we had, we've seen two crazy years of extreme valuations out there. Yeah. And now we're seeing the, the market kind of stopping or halting. And there's a realization of the need of microeconomic or product economics that will really be viable and really allow us to, to bring a new product or a new solution to the market. And these enablers are actually the ones that will make it happen. So I think there's a real sense of urgency, both of companies that have raised tons of money and now have to kind of meet their targets and are looking for these new technologies to actually help them get there, as well as absolutely new technologies that are now falling on kind of more attentive ears, if you like, understanding that this is exactly what we need. So that's kind of a, a really wide area that kind of engulfs a lot of different types of technology. I think a second theme, and again, it's a huge one, and everybody's speaking of it, is data. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear our industry is so, so, so back in time and, and really I heard someone saying it's a primitive industry. I would be uh, more uh, kind and call it a conservative industry, but or traditional one, but whatever the, the, the name is, the sense is that we don't have even the basic infrastructure allowing for data to support the processes we're looking for. So there's a huge gap there that has to be closed. And as data is becoming a part of, of, of the basics for any improvement or any change or any novelty in any other space in our life and food, in fact, it has an immense potential for optimizing what we do, reducing waste, improving our R&D processes, improving our consumption processes as, as consumers. So I think that's a huge field that, that everybody feels the gap right now really strong. And as an incubator, by the way, we get a lot of approaches by companies from kind of the tech space saying, hey, how can we help Bluetech? How can we support your companies? And we really, really embrace that. We have a, a job of making sure that startups that are just starting their way will start their way knowing and, and oriented towards integrating data. Last but not least, I think the, the world of functional food and active ingredients, both in, in the sense of, of personalizing our nutrition to the right direction, but also attending or treating food as uh, a way to uh, su support our immune system, support our overall health, preventive nutrition as a, as a title. I think that's an area that was always out there, but is getting more and more prominent as we go ahead and as companies or, or corporates are understanding, they need to improve that as well. So kind of really huge themes, if you like, that I feel will be, will be our focus for this next year and the years to come next. Yeah, if you think about it um, with food, it's one of those industries that it's not a one size fit all, right? Depending on where you live, you talked about regulations. And I mean, if you take Europe, it's not as the U.S., although we have the European Union. And other than that, there is very different tastes, right? From the Mediterranean side to the Nordics. Uh, so food is one of those things that for consumers is different. And for farmers that don't have that infrastructure, right, to really digitalize. I mean, it's true. Mm -hmm. Farming is the less digitalized sector of it all because it's so difficult to, to get 
farmers to invest in technology. It's also really fragmented, right? I mean, you have to go farmer by farmer to make a real difference there. Yep. It's not the big corporate, which again, and they have their own difficulties with data. A big goal of companies is to become really data-driven, but I don't know how many companies are truly data-driven. There are so many challenges just for the sector, like innovation goes so fast. And unfortunately, regulations go so slow. Um, If you had this magic wand, for example, what kind of policies would you like to see changed? It's a really tough question. You know, it's always challenging. I know coming from the food industry, I have the highest respect for regulators. I know it's not a very (laughs) common or a very bonton kind of way, but the responsibility that lies on these people's shoulders is crazy. I mean, unlike a pharma that has its own kind of tight sort of regulation or regulatory process, every kid can go to the supermarket and buy a product from the shelf. I mean, there's no way we can control consumption out there of food. And in that sense, all the responsibility lies on the regulator or the industry to make sure that we're bringing safe things out there. So whatever I'm going to say now is with the utmost respect to the process and how really critical it is. Having said that, as you mentioned, the pace we have to take requires different approaches and different states of mind on how do we approve, where do we take risks and how do we mitigate those risks or kind of contain them in a different way. So if I had a magic wand, I would love to have a really fast track of regulatory processes and maybe trying to control the way it reaches the market rather than getting the approval uh, in order to be more contained in the impact that eventually it has. Understanding the life cycle of a start of the fact that reaching the market and having sales is the basic for actually allowing it to keep on living. There's a really big gap there that I think we should think of how to solve or how to find a better way to address in order to kind of change it. I don't have all the answers, but I think some of it lie in this and how do we kind of condense this kind of gap and are willing on one hand to take more chances and one on the other hand kind of limiting them to a very specific maybe area or type of consuming or whatever, but allowing a startup to actually try its activity in the market. And I think we're getting more and more indications, for example, you know, there's a lot of resistance to GMO in Europe and a lot of acceptance in the United States. And it all relies on different agendas of the regulator in order to actually approach it. So it's a really good example of how you can address it differently. And I don't think that the FDA is willing to take a lot of chances with its public's health, right? So, but they managed to find the right way though. So I think communication, right? Yes, absolutely. That's important. I mean, you know, what will be for cultured meat? Now we have a country that serves us already, for sure. The U.S. is next and other countries. But in a way, sometimes I feel if we had the sort of a global consortium, right, of saying once we approve something, that it just is okay for everybody, then you have to also address the consumer and telling that story. And a lot of times this waiting is not the best answer for them. In Italy, the government is super scared, but it's more, I think, the lobbies or people feeling they're going to lose their job. And instead of saying, we will have to have both, we will live 
off of both and really diversify, that fear is keeping you really backwards instead of moving forward. That means you. I think you're very right. And, and yes, communication has a lot to do with it. And PR has a lot to do with it. And labeling has a lot to do with it. Coming back to regulation in that sense. I mean, how do we label it in the right way? And, you know, as always, when you let politics come in, <laughs> it usually kind of changes the, the, you know, the whole scientific truth <laughs> and kind of lends in other, other elements. And I think also in that sense, I have to say, we have this kind of huge price gap that we have to address, but yeah. have we ever considered what happens when we neutralize the subsidies that are now given to farmers in order to have dairy and meat as we have them today? Doesn't that at least in some way level the odds and kind of makes the prices get a bit closer? So there's a, a lot of policy making around it. So I, if you're, you're giving me that magic wand back again, yeah, I would like yeah. to have that. And Kind of neutralize all the, the the kind of the noise, so to speak, around. And again, not to dismiss the livelihood of people that are now into that industry, but definitely kind of having a wider scope and understanding that, as as in any other industry, going under undergoing change, we have to think differently about it if we want to kind of broaden the perspective and take into consideration the better good of more people and how to feed them. Exactly. Just can't think about. Right now, you have to think about what's going to happen 10 years from now, 15 years from now. The world is sending very clear messages that we need to change things, right? So until we sort of rebalance that playing field, whether by farming and restoring biodiversity to biotech, you know. Let's start by localizing our production in the sense that we'll, we'll kind of dismiss that reliance on, on and the imbalance in that sense happened a lot about because of that. And I think we, we got all the indicators in the past three years why we have to kind of think different about that, even if we're not that aware of, you know, global warming and climate change and, and all that big noise and the big words out there, practically just opening, you know, the doors and figuring out that we don't have enough flour for sex <laughs> year. <laughs> It's a very basic thing that we are made aware of every day. Absolutely. And I think in a way, how do you make people realize that because the inflation, yes, we had COVID and a war, but we are missing certain things is correlated by what's happening in our food system. How do we really educate? the next generation or the consumers, a lot of them are not the next generation. They're the older generation that are making the most resistant. How do we do that? I think I have to say that, I mean, the main issue I think is not the education in itself because, you know, it happens. Every, every mother now knows that you have to reduce the sugar levels within your kid's diet, right? Or most moms are at least aware of it. So it's not that you don't have this education happening. It's just that it takes a very long time, which we don't have. So I think that the question is not only on how to educate, but whether how do we do it very, very fast in order to make an impact in the right time frame that is getting tighter and tighter by the minute. Uh, so that will be one question. And the second is that I think the very wide discussion that we feel or hear right now about longevity is a big deal because we have a much senior type of, of consumers that we still need to educate. So if you're looking at a generation kind of change, saying, okay, it's easier to pass a generation and create change. Here you still have 
people that are very set in the way they eat and the way they consume food. And you have to kind of completely change their diet. So that's even harder than kind of educating kids that in the next, next generation will know different than what they were raised at. So I think it's a double kind of challenge in that sense. Uh, luckily or not, information and the awareness, I think that is growing and growing. I just, I saw this research a few months ago. I love this kind of title. They called it Climb Awards. People that are eating with climate in, in the back of their mind. So I think those rates are increasing because the, the connection between the need and the actual change that is happening in food is already being established. So that's kind of, a, I feel like a supportive kind of trend that is helping us out. But yeah. it's a huge challenge, I agree. And obviously younger generations are very climate and mission focused, right? They'll buy the brand according to what cause. And it's also a question, I think, of lifestyle. I mean, that impacts, obviously, a lot in what we're doing. Um, I mean, we sort of went from, I guess, policies, innovation, since we touched on sort of consumer, what do you think is missing there that we should be thinking of? Do you feel anything is missing? It's a good question. I think there are some gaps that are very hard to close and... I think I'm going to be a bit banal and go back to plant-based solutions as an area. I think that there was kind of very positive attempt by both consumers and producers to kind of go in the right direction and having plant-based out there. And we saw the gap in, in the type of solutions that we see there. So I would actually go back to that area and again, be very obvious about it and say that a huge focus around these areas of, to improve them is something that will really kind of hit on, on an area that is already out there. I mean, people are already starting to have an awareness. We're already starting to see the market being accepting of it. And relatively speaking, we're not talking about a huge kind of step for bringing innovation in. It's not groundbreaking. We've seen a lot of these areas handled beforehand. But it's just like that we're reaching kind of the final edge of it in order to really have a tipping point where people will really go to that direction and kind of missing on it. Mm -hmm. So I'm being really kind of obvious, but I would like to see a lot of innovation still targeting in that area to help us kind of have that kind of jump or, or kind of close the gap that is still existing there. It's like we're missing on a huge opportunity for actually making a huge difference there and really kind of set back right now because of the first bad experience, if you like, or not good enough experience in making the change. That's kind of one hand, end of it. The second, I think, and I really relate to what you said earlier, that we're not um, nearly exploiting the opportunities of, of different types or different sources of, of plant-based opportunities that we have. And I think kind of expanding on that area and maybe overcoming the very obvious economical drivers that are kind of keeping that from happening. I would love to see more innovation, even on a financial level, of allowing different types of sources to become more uh, relevant and to be used in a wider way and allowing more local production happening. I think there's a, this, this, any correction to this imbalance and this could come from innovation around the sourcing, could come from innovation around the, the production. It could come from innovation around the financial elements 
that are integrated into that system and kind of driving it in the wrong direction. So I would like to also see things happening there. And I think it will help us with this kind of overall trend into a better place. I, I totally agree. And to that end, it would make that sustainable, you True. know, because that is very important. If we want to eat responsibly, that is an important part of it. So on that, I completely agree. So you saw some of the challenges that are out there. And we talked about the trends like 10 years from now. Yeah. How are we going to be producing and consuming our food? Well, 10 years is a very short period of time in food. But to kind of go with the concept and saying in the future, hopefully as near as possible, <laughs> but don't catch me on the exact time frame. I think we will be much more aware of what we're eating and how it fits our diet. And that will in itself create more diversity in terms of the sources of what we're consuming. So this awareness will have to be supported by a very accessible data that is both on ourselves, what's right for us, what's a better impact for us, what is relevant to us, and with what is available for us and where we're at and where we're living. So I think the combination of data and personalized nutrition, not on the very deep, deep level, I can have a dietary <laughs> element or culinary even references, that's enough for me to, as, as a progress. Uh, I think that will be an area that will be very different. I mean, we will eat with our smartphones in that sense of uh, it will help us support how we eat. I think that will be one end. I want to hope, and I do believe, a lot of it relies on what you just mentioned regarding kids and their orientation towards what they do and how they want to be more eco-friendly in everything they do. Uh, I would like to think that we will be also much more aware to that and that will drive the industry to much better solutions, both in terms of packaging, if we need it at all, where can we lose it? Where can we, where do we have to have it? And then also into how this packaging could be reused and then maybe support the whole agenda of, of a cleaner area. I think there's a huge impact there and it's almost bypassed because we're looking at food for what we eat and not the packaging around it. So both eating the right thing for me and making sure that I'm, I'm buying the right or the right ecological or supportive kind of area, that's, that's, that's a big deal. And I want to hope we will be much more plant-based or at least reduce our animal-based consumption in a very meaningful way. I think the, the, there's a lot of regulation that had to be integrated in order to drive things for happening. We saw this with plastic and packaging. We saw this with the red labels or, or the, the sugar reduction agenda. And I think it's no different in, in making sure we have reduced GM emissions. And, and this is, should be something that comes from bottom, top down in, in order to make it happen. I think you are correct. <laughs> so last question, since we're going a little bit all over in terms of food, lately there's a lot of talk about food in space, right? And a lot of times when people think about food in space, whether it's producing food, hydroponics or the printers, a lot of it comes from, from there. Right. What is one, what is one innovation that if you were going today in space, you would bring up with you today? Well, it will be actually the very last one that I mentioned. I mean, using in air, so to say, or gas in the air, and being able to turn this back into some sort of a nutritional form 
Well, that seems to be a very uh, both reasonable and viable and, well, if we can do it, why not, right? Kind of type of, of innovation that will probably be very relevant to us as we try to find different sources of protein mostly and allowing things to be local and that's reliant on the exact kind of sourcing that we can find in a, in a certain place. So I think that will be a huge breakthrough and it's not everything to rely on it, but it will be a very supportive kind of force in allowing a change in, in diets. And I think that will be something amazing. I, I'm in awe whenever I see a new innovation, right? whether it's making water out of air or making protein out of air either. It's very interesting to see how we can we do with that. In well, two very useful things. Well, I guess you could bring a mini CO2 fermenter. <laughs> to make right. maybe very circular, by the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it combines everything, all the trends in the same place, right? <laughs> There's no waste. We are using alternative protein and we're running it in a circular way. Amazing. <laughs> cool. Can you tell us a little bit about the companies that are at Fresh Start? Absolutely. So to date, we have 10 portfolio companies. We are looking at companies in very different areas along the value chain. So starting from blue tree, reducing sugar from natural beverages, going through sweet bounds, that's actually a formulation for reducing sugar or replacing sugar. So that's on one hand, around cell culture or alternative protein, we have Profuse, enabling technology for enhancing the production of cultivated meat. We have c to cell producing amazing, innovative cell lines for cultivated fish. We have another new enabling technology coming in called Medium Well. They're actually uh, working on the filtration of the medium in order to support a more sustainable industry around that area. We have augmented reality with novel functional proteins via fermentation and based on computational biology. Bountica with novel protein preservatives. Alteco that's actually all around energy management, also crucial for a, a more sustainable industry altogether. Maidry that are supporting bioplastic packaging via fungi fermentation. I probably missed a few. <laughs> uh, Pigmentum, of course, molecular biology platform. They're creating innovative ingredients via plants and are now focused on casein, for example, to be produced in their lettuce plants. So it's really diverse. A lot of amazing novel technologies that are in our incubator and it's really exciting. So yeah, I love them all. They're all my kids, right? Then Mama Noga. I hear you. And as I said, it's an incredible incubator and really good work from all of you. Um, we're out of time, but how do people look you up? Thank you so much. And I love being on your show. So thank you for having me here. You're very welcome. So yeah, I'm very available. Just look me up on LinkedIn. You can look me, my our incubator, Fresh Start at fresh-start.co.il on our website. And also we have a LinkedIn page. Uh, and whenever you're in Israel, please come and visit us in our amazing 10 portfolio companies. We're set in the north. We have the amazing views around us. We have an amazing supportive sector around us. And we have a lot of innovation going on here. So whether you're an Israeli entrepreneur or looking for an early stage supporter or whether you're an investor or a multinational corporate or other entrepreneurs just looking to understand how it works here, you're more than welcome to come and look us up and come visit us. Well, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon.
Want to dive deep into food innovation? Subscribe to the Food Tech Junkie series. Tune in and listen to the industry's champions whose mission is to reinvent our future by collaborating and disrupting the status quo as a way to rebalance our planet and our daily lives. For more great content, visit our website at www.edibleplanetventures.com and follow us on social media on the Edible Planet Ventures channels.